As we get into today's episode, I just want to take a second and remind you that there's a ton of extra content available to the members of Film and Whiskey Nation who support us through our Patreon. Check us out on patreon.com slash filmwhiskey. In 2017, director Christopher Nolan and star Finn Whitehead gave the world a stunningly quiet war drama that flies in the face of World War II epics. In 2023, we make a return trip to the UK to try a specially finished scotch. The film is Dunkirk. The whiskey is Chivas Regal Mizunara finish. And we'll review them both. This is the The Film Film and Whiskey Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are looking at Christopher Nolan's 2017 war epic that still only runs 100 minutes long, Dunkirk. Dude, when I started this film and I saw that there was an hour and 47 minutes on the clock, I was super pumped. Is this the shortest war movie in like the last 50 years? I just can't believe that that he successfully made a World War II movie in less than two hours. Yeah. And honestly, like the film finished and I think there's like nine minutes of credits. (laughs) So like it's legitimately like an hour and 38, hour and 39 minutes. It's the shortest war film ever made. Ever. We're just going to call it now. (laughs) That's it, man. You know, it's really funny that you mentioned that. I was actually looking today. uh, About a year ago, I watched John Huston's adaptation of the book The Red Badge of Courage, which is a movie that he made like in the early 50s, and it was two hours long, and then the studio took it from him and cut it down to like 65 minutes. So Mm. it's it's like a super short movie. Brad, it is one of the best war movies I have ever seen in my life, and I was looking for it on Blu-ray. It is not available on Blu-ray. I can't find it anywhere. Uh, disappointing yeah pissed me off a little bit i wanted to buy it come on criterion what are you doing i can't wait till the day where we get to watch that 65 minute masterpiece brad yeah (laughs) i'm in dude was it streaming somewhere it was when i watched it i don't think it is now so you just can't watch the movie you could pay i guess you could find like a vhs or something well you can pay four dollars and watch it on any of the streamers but Uh, you know it's not streaming with your subscription anywhere is what i'm saying I mean, I will say, like, your $4 doesn't go quite as far if you're only getting 65 minutes of content. Bob. That's what I'm saying. You got to spend that on, like, <laughs> Gone with the Wind or something, man. Exactly. $1 per hour. <laughs> All right, man. Let's start talking about Dunkirk, a movie that is, I'm hesitant to call a classic. You know, we start the podcast off by saying a, a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. This movie's only like six years old. I'm Brad G. Yeah, we do do say that too. Sure, sure. (laughs) It's a six-year-old movie. It's one of the more recent films we've done on the show. But, you know, we've broken down before what a classic means in in general parlance. And I always talk about how when I was growing up, TNT had that series that they called New Classics, which was just like movies that Ted Turner wants to get residuals off of. So he's Mm -hmm. putting... And this seems very much like that. Like if a classic has a lot to do with being a very popular movie by a very popular filmmaker, then this certainly fits the bill. 
Yeah, and uh, it's interesting, though. I was looking at this on IMDb. It has a 7.8, I believe. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that makes this the least Nolan bro-y Nolan movie ever to be Noland. Yeah, you know what? When this movie came out, I remember a lot of people went to see it. It made, I think, almost a half billion dollars worldwide. And by the time the Oscars rolled around, the general vibe on this movie was incredible craftsmanship, signature, Nolan, chronology, you know, mess up, and then not much else. Like, I feel like this movie left a lot of people very cold and kind of underscored for a lot of people what Nolan's trajectory has kind of become, especially with Tenet after this, where his characters get less and less fleshed out to the point where in Tenet, the main character's name is the protagonist. Like, he doesn't even have a name. Mm, and uh, That feels like an old Charlie Chaplin type of title. <laughs> I love that. I would have watched that more than Tenet, honestly. But <laughs> this movie does kind of feel like it has one foot in his crowd-pleasing Hollywood blockbuster mentality and one foot in his desire to kind of push the boundaries of what narrative can be. I'm really excited to talk to you about it, Brad, because I don't know that it entirely works for me, but I really respect it. Yeah, I think overall, coming into this film, I, I knew that there was like some time warp type of things, and I knew that a lot of people focused on just that. That they were like, ah, it's just Nolan doing his stupid time stuff again. And I feel like that was just kind of the vibe I got about the movie. And I am very happy to say, I thought this movie was incredible, Bob. Yeah, it's a really good movie. Uh, I remember I, I saw it in the theater, and then after it came out on video, uh, plug for the Akron Public Library. I talk about the library a lot on here. At the main library campus, Brad, they have this big, like, 500 seat auditorium that they show free movies on when they come out mm, and it's like nice it's like going to the movies for free it's pretty great and so uh, i took my dad to go see dunkirk he hadn't seen it yet and it was like a great time at the movies watching dunkirk for free in a library uh grade a dad hangout time you know was that like was that like a hangout where you and your dad were like repairing your relationship and and all those lost years and stuff <laughs> you were just the worst man <laughs> I hope he never listens to this show. He's gonna, <laughs> he's gonna think that that's what I think of him. You always do this. <laughs> the worst thing is I've never even met your dad. I know <laughs> you're out here just shitting on him all the time, man. No, I'm I'm not shitting on him. I'm shitting on your guys' relationship. Oh, thank you, thank you for clarifying <laughs> that. I appreciate that. <laughs> no problem. All right, man. Let's dive into talking about the movie proper and and out of some weird uh, familial history you're concocting for me. <laughs> and let's get to our first segment of the day, which we call Brad Explains. Brad's going to give us the movie plots with only 60 seconds ticking on the clock. So let's go ahead and hear your take with this little segment that we call Brad Explains. Brad Explains is the part of the podcast where Brad breaks down the plot of the movie, which he has just seen often for the first time. This was not Brad's first time seeing Dunkirk. I know that for yes, a it, fact. Yes, it was. What? Really? <laughs> I thought you just told me like last week that you'd seen this already. No, I'd never seen Dunkirk. Wow. I did not know it for a fact. <laughs> I just like keeping you on your toes, Bob. Wow. I, man, I just lied very boldly, I guess, uh, in the middle of this show. <laughs> so this was her first time seeing Dunkirk on a tiny yeah. screen. 
in my basement. As Nolan did not intend. Yes. Yes, 100%. The TV that I have, Bob, I, I just, everybody needs to know that I'm like a spender on certain things and yet a miser on others. Uh, I bought like a 46 inch television in 2013 and baby, it is still going strong. Now I know why you always score the movies lower than me. <laughs> Why did this movie look so bad? Well, Brad, it's because you're watching it on a decades-old television. Oh, man. Hey, it's a flat screen at the very least. Oh, there you go. Man, <laughs> moving up in the world. All right, so That's this right. is your first time having seen Dunkirk. You have 60 seconds on the clock to break down the plot. I don't know that you need 60 seconds unless you really want to get into the weird chronology of the movie. But, hey, do with this minute as you will and go. The film Dunkirk is about the Dunkirk evacuation uh, early in World War II when hundreds of thousands of allied soldiers, French, British, uh, Belgian, are stuck on the shores of Dunkirk, France. And the story follows the army on the shore and their attempts to escape. It follows the Air Force as they battled to keep the troops safe as they evacuated. And it follows the civilian Navy that is called into service to go to Dunkirk and bring back as many soldiers alive as possible. Boom? Boom. Question mark? Okay. There's a lot of there's a lot of booms, actually. <laughs> <laughs> truly, truly. Do you, do you want me to just end boom, ba-boom, 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 boom? I don't know where to start with this movie, Brad. I have a lot of thoughts, but they're all very kind of disparate thoughts. Like, as I watch it, I was like, oh, I want to comment on that thing. I want to comment on that thing. But there's not a lot of, I don't know, like, connecting tissue for me in terms of forming an opinion about this movie. It's just kind of like... I don't know. I have a lot of disconnected thoughts. Help guide me through this journey, Brad. <laughs> Please open us up with a two-minute monologue talking about the upper half of Tom Hardy's face. Mm. Honestly, let's do it, man. Let's talk Tom Hardy. Tom Hardy's in this movie. <laughs> he is the most famous person in this movie, except maybe Kenneth Branagh. Because uh, uh, this Harry was... Styles. Well, yeah, yeah. I was going to say this was much. this was. Uh, I guess this was peak One Direction, or like right after. This might have been like the first Harry Styles album. So, yeah, pretty famous. I'll give you that. <laughs> Tom Hardy is able to do so much with his body language in this movie, mm -hmm. especially towards the end. So he plays a pilot who is basically the hero of Dunkirk, uh, just getting in dogfights left and right on the English Channel, uh, Dude, swooping in down like seven different different enemy fighters and a bomber yeah like i i think five is an ace so uh he he gets <laughs> he had it all a good in day. One day yeah he really one, he had one a great fell day. swoop if you will <laughs> towards the end of the movie where he has lost fuel and he knows he's going down and he just decides to kind of glide over the beach you see hit the realization kick in and you see him get very resolute about it and kind of uh, up like, uh, you know, clinch up a bit. And then you see him relax and it is all done in one shot. And it is mm -hmm. like he does so much acting with the top half of a face <laughs> covered in goggles and his mouth covered by a, a, you know, a mask. And you just watch the guy's shoulders relax and you're like, I get what's going on inside this person's head. It really mm -hmm. is truly a thing of beauty as a physical performance. 
Yeah, I, I think Tom was my favorite actor in the film. I think that he's far and away the best actor in the film. Mm-hmm. And he does so much with his eyes and he does so much with his vocal intonation. Like, I I don't think we really talk a ton about actors ability to control their their vocal cords and ability to control how they present <laughs> themselves in that way. Yeah. I mean, but, when you phrase it like that, though, it, it kind of seems like a baseline expectation that they that people can control their vocal cords, you know, like, yeah, but. If Bob, someone doesn't control their vocal cords, I feel like that's worthy of talking about. Yeah, that's what I'm saying though. Like <laughs> it it's it's it just seems like something that we overlook. I feel it. That yeah. There's a lot of actors who, you know, just sound okay, and then there's other actors who really know how to use their voices for maximum effect. Mm-hmm. And I, I think Tom Hardy is one of those people. And you can't have somebody in a cockpit of the movie the entire time and, and get away with an average voice acting performance. Mm -hmm. Brad, I think maybe the way to structure the rest of this front half of the episode is to follow Nolan's structure with this movie. So as you said, there are three separate story strands going on at the same time. And eventually they all converge at one specific point. And the longest of those strands is what Nolan calls the mole, which is the name of, you know, it's, it's not the mole as in, there is a uh, 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 <laughs> Mission Impossible. <laughs> yeah, like an enemy among us. They're talking about the people on the beach, on land. And that story takes place over the course of one week. It is intercut with a story on the sea, which is all these civilians coming across the channel to rescue the people at Dunkirk, which takes place over the course of one day. And then the air battles, which are taking place over the course of one hour. And they're intercut equally throughout the movie. And you don't quite realize you're on different storylines unless you did a good job of reading in the first few minutes. But I think for a lot of people, they didn't really piece it together until the end of the movie, which I've always found really interesting because it's the first time Nolan gives you the answer to the key. Yeah. Like right in the first few minutes. And yeah. I actually really appreciate that he wasn't trying to be cute about it. Having the different storylines really does build tension and momentum and intercutting them in a, you know, a, a, a non-chronological way, it didn't detract from the movie this time around for me. No, not at all. I, honestly, I think it might be one of his cleverest uses of, of time warping yet. They're, like, he's just so open about it. Mm-hmm. He's like, hey, here's the army. Their story takes place over a week. Here's the Navy. Their story takes place over a day. Here's the Air Force. Their story takes place over an hour. Yeah. Boom. Well, that, and I, that's it. Like, it's not hard to understand. I, I guess I'm just going to go out on a limb and say people are stupid if they didn't understand that. Well, I think the thing is, like, <laughs> if you want to make this story cinematic, you kind of have to do something like that. It is mm-hmm. an incredibly heroic and harrowing tale to read in a book, right? But when you're talking about watching something on film, you would just be, if you put this movie in chronological order, it would suck because it would just be (laughs) guys sitting around for six days and then the last one-seventh of the movie would be full of action, right? Mm -hmm. So you have to do something to give the movie forward momentum. And anyway, I said all that to to get us back to talking about the mole sequence or, or strand of storytelling. Let's talk about these young soldiers and also Kenneth Branagh that we see on the beach. <laughs> Starting with, uh, I guess the person. That's Sir no, Kenneth Branagh to you, Bob. That's true. 
You're you're just a peasant talking about Kenneth like you're on equal terms. I mean, I, I like Kenneth Brand. I think he's really good in this movie. I'm such a big fan. I want to talk about the ostensible star of the movie, though, Finn Whitehead. And I can't I've heard it pronounced both Fion and just Finn. I'm going to go with Finn because I'm an American and I butcher people's languages. So I'm just going to go ahead and do the butchering that feels most comfortable to me. We'll say Finn Isn't Whitehead. Is some sort of like cultural appropriation to try and pronounce it the way that they I don't know. pronounce it? I don't know, man. It's Finn. <laughs> Finn Whitehead. Okay, Finn. <laughs> uh, here's the thing about Finn Whitehead. Uh, he's only been in a few movies post Dunkirk. He was a pretty unknown actor before this. And, you know, he's a young man, but he's a grown man, so I can say it. He's not a good actor, Brad. He's he's very, very wooden. I don't believe most of what he does in this movie, even when he's like being pulled from burning wreckage of a ship and laying on, you know, the deck of a boat covered in oil and panting. And then he has this line where he just says, take me home. And it's supposed to be like this big release at the end of the film. I don't buy it for a second, dude. I just don't think he's a very good actor. You are incredibly rude, Bob. Uh, but you are not wrong. Uh-huh. <laughs> not wrong at all, man. Yeah, he is like, okay. I think that there's moments throughout the film where he works. I think the I think the part when he is like fighting for his French friend that he didn't know is French. I think he shows a little bit of passion, a little bit of chutzpah and... Mm. I'm like, okay, I'm down, I'm down with him here. But at the end of the day, when he's trying to deliver that line, as you said, of like, I'm coming home or whatever the heck yeah, he says, yeah. Yeah, you know, he's not that good. Well, and then they put like the emotional weight of the movie on him, obviously throughout the film, but especially at the end, after they've been rescued, after they've been taken back to England and they're on the train and Harry Styles is inconsolable about thinking that they have failed And then he reads the transcript of what Churchill has just proclaimed to Parliament. And he reads it in the most monotone, mumbly, (laughs) Guy Pierce in memento voice. (laughs) And and the editing there is incredible. Like that montage is pitch perfect. That cinematography, Mm -hmm. gorgeous. The Mm -hmm. Hans Zimmer score is the best it's been the whole movie in that one little moment. And I still can't quite connect with it the way Nolan wants me to connect. It's one of the few times that I think Nolan is honestly, earnestly going for like sentiment, like Spielbergy yeah. kind of sentiment at the end yeah, of his genuine movie. Genuine feel good yeah. ending. And it doesn't quite land for me. It's almost there. Like almost all the components work, but then there's one component that all the others are trying to make up for. Is that component's named Finn? <laughs> it is. It is. No, I'm I'm with you, man. It's a it's a slightly disappointing ending to an otherwise incredible movie. And and you're right. Like that moment is super important. And you know, unfortunately, they cast who they cast. But I, I just wish that he had a little bit of passion behind him, like a little bit of something. Mm-hmm. I like. To to go from thinking that you were completely defeated and broken and the worst military defeat in history into, like, this inspiring speech, like, I, I wish that his voice moved with that story, but it just doesn't at all. So, yeah, I'm I'm 100% with you there, man. I've got a question for you about the whole mole thread. And 
it kind of goes against everything we we know to be true, which is that short movies are great. I almost wish this movie was about 10 minutes longer, Brad. And I wish they had put, I wish they'd put all 10 of those minutes into fleshing out the mole thread a little bit more, even though it is by far the bulkiest part of the movie. Mm -hmm. There were there were moments, you know, in, in doing the research for this movie they heard a story about guys just walking into the sea because they were so hopeless that they would ever get rescued. And there's a great moment in this movie where that happens and it is very harrowing. And I felt like those were the only moments where this felt like a lived in world and not simply a collection of action scenes that had been strung together in a really suspenseful way. And I wanted to feel more empathy, more sympathy with those soldiers on the beach but the way that the movie is edited together, I didn't even get the sense that they were there for a week, even though it told me it was a week. You only see it be nighttime like one time. You know what I mean? And so mm -hmm. it, it seems like, OK, maybe they were there three days. But what happened to the other four days? Like, I want to see more of the paranoia of them getting bombed all the time and the the emotional toll it's taking on those men on the beach. I just wish there was a little bit more to that thread. Yeah, uh, no, I, I'm actually with you there. I think that you need something like uh, I was the the obvious movie comparison for me in this is 1917. Hmm. And I think that there's that scene in 1917 where, you know, the main character you're following throughout the whole movie finds kind of refuge for a moment with a, a I don't know, a war refugee who's like still living in their house under the city. Yeah. D do you remember yep. that? Yep. Like they needed a few moments like that where everything's quiet and the troops are just sitting around a fire. And honestly, like this movie's already super quiet. I don't even know if they needed to say anything. Right. Like if you have the right actors and the right like you know, you hear the snap of a twig and everybody kind of freaks out and is twitchy and paranoid. Like, man, you, you set the stage for for what's going on, you know, while you're intercutting back and forth with the other stuff. Mm -hmm. But I, I'm with you. I think you could have spent just a little more time establishing how long it felt, you know, how long those six days felt. Yeah. And I don't even need a scene where they all like sit around and say like, oh, back home, my gal, Abigail. Like, no, I don't, I don't care about that. Like, <laughs> can you spell the strawberries, Mr. Frodo? <laughs> like, all I need is a couple more scenes that establish, you know, uh, uh, the character of Killian Murphy in this movie. Mm. He's got the shell shocked thing going on and you find out very quickly why he why he came to be that way. I want to see more of that from the guys on the beach. I want to see mm -hmm. what the emotional toll is being taken upon them because of this repetitive hellscape that they're in that they can't escape from. So anyway, yeah, that's my thoughts on the mole. Why don't we talk about the C sequences? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Featuring Academy Award winner Mark Rylance showing up. Uh, I think this might have been his first movie after he wins his Oscar. And well, what, uh, did, what did he win an Oscar for? Bridge of Spies, the Steven Spielberg oh. movie. Oh, nice. dude, good movie. You need to watch that I movie. I have not, not seen Bridge of Spies. That's another dad movie. Like, it's a okay. Cold War movie starring Tom Hanks, directed yeah. by Spielberg. Great dad movie. Yeah, okay. Anyway, he shows up, and he's uh, carrying around Barry Keoghan, who would go on to be one of our brightest shining young actors. I'm a huge fan of him, and this is a really early role for him. 
What did you think of all the people in the C sequences, Brad? I really liked them. Yeah. I think that they are the strongest part of the movie. I, I think that the, like Tom Hardy's incredible and the the dog fighting sequences are great, but there's not, you know, a ton of character development there. I think that you really have uh Tom Glenn Carney and Barry Keegan and Mark Rylance in roles where they are the ones you get to connect with mm-hmm. because they have weirdly like you feel the most at stake for them. Like they didn't have to get on the boat and mm-hmm. go try and save them. Mm-hmm. Like the the navy would have sent some men on their boat. And yet like that that willingness to die for country is important. And when you hear the the tiny little bit of, you know, oh, his older son died in the Air Force in the early weeks of the war, like it's just little moments like that where you understand, you know, Rylance's motivations as a character and his stoicism and his willingness to to sail off into the face of danger. I'm going to make light of their story thread for a little bit, but I will say this up front. Like theirs is the best acted of the three strands, I would say. Mm-hmm. I don't know that it's the strongest of the three, though. And I think that's just because the stakes feel lower for part, like at least part of their journey. Not that like their personal stakes are very high, like you said, because they're going into battle and didn't need to go there. But when you're cutting between images of like soldiers getting dive bombed on the beach and destroyers getting blown up and men burning alive. Then they cut back to like Barry Keoghan just like laying, laying down on the floor. And they're like, (laughs) should I give him a cup of tea? What should I do? And then like they put the same ticking clock score behind all that, that they do Mm -hmm. behind like Tom Hardy shooting planes out of the sky. It's like, okay, this, this feels less vital than Tom Hardy shooting down bombers. All right. I so I SNL you can hire me whenever you want. This would have been this would have just killed in like 20 early 2018. They need to do an SNL sketch where they intercut the actual scenes from the movie of the the army and the the Royal Air Force and all that. And then they, they'll have Killian Murphy come guest host, so he'll be there. And they'll intercut it with them on the boat, Killian Murphy, and then cast members of SNL pretending to be Barry Keegan and all them. <laughs> and they're all trading stories about how they got that scar <laughs> on the boat on the way to rescue everyone. No, what I think they should do is like, <laughs> instead of Barry Keegan getting like a, you know, life ending knock on the head, they mm-hmm. keep cutting back to what's happening on the boat and they're all just having like minor inconveniences happen. <laughs> Like, yes. Oh, I nicked my finger cutting Ooh. cutting this lemon wedge for my tea. Got, got a wood chip in my hand. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so like, and I think that that story thread suffers the most in terms of the way the chronology is laid out. Because like we said, with the mole, it's seven days, but the action only happens in the last day. But because Nolan inserts different things for them to do throughout the week, like sneaking onto an abandoned ship, he gets he introduces action into that. Whereas the sea, there's only so much you can do showing them Bob across the English Channel. And so, like, all <laughs> the action in that story thread happens in the movie's last 30 minutes. And it gets really tense and really exciting and very heroic. But all of the memorable stuff from that story thread is really backloaded. And I feel like the front part of it 
does kind of drag for me a bit. Yeah, I mean, I'll push back a little there. I think that the fact that they basically have them shove off from England and then immediately find Killian Murphy Mm. is, like, meaningful, right? Like, I think that Nolan is trying to accomplish what you asked for earlier and that, you know, his shell shock is supposed to show you the horrors of the six days leading up to their rescue. Mm -hmm. And so I think there is some action happening there. I, I do think that it's... You know, it feels a little contrived when he's like trying to fight them for control of the ship and and he falls and knocks his head. And that definitely is one of the weaker parts of the script. But I think that Killian Murphy is an incredible actor and sells the whole shell shock incredibly well. Yeah, for sure. I also like when they pick up the other pilot that crashes. Uh, Jack Loudon is Mm -hmm. the actor's name. Excellent. Excellent actor. Um, he reminded me a ton. Maybe it was just the the outfit he was wearing too, but it reminded me a ton of Richard Attenborough in The Great Escape. Like he just mm-hmm. he had so much of that energy going for him. Uh, one of my favorite performances in the whole movie. I think. I thought he had a lot of Peter O'Toole huh. look about him, like with the blonde hair and the super blue eyes, and like he just had a bright earnestness about him that reminded me of Lawrence of Arabia. Well, there you go. Uh, two glowing recommendations from us. <laughs> yeah. Dude, let's talk about the last story thread, the air. I mean, we kind of already have because it really only consists of two characters. It's Tom Hardy and Jack Loudon. Uh, I do think that that is where the movie felt like the most purely, I don't know, cinematic to me. Like mm-hmm. the spectacle, like not even just spectacle, but like, wow, how did they pull off that shot? How much of this is done in camera? How much of this is practical? You get those shots from like down on the beach every time a a, a German plane is going to come dive bomb them. And what the cinematographer does in a lot of instances is he'll have like an out of focus head looking up at the sky and it like the the camera will be behind this person. And then like way off in the distance, you see this tiny little speck and it's in like pitch perfect focus. Like mm-hmm. the way they choreograph the air sequences it almost breaks every rule of how you're supposed to do it. Like, I don't know if you remember in the movie, the aviator, they talk about why isn't this turning out? And he's like, there's no clouds in the sky. There's no frame of reference to show how fast they're going mm-hmm. in this movie. It feels like they're just, they're flying against a, a wall of gray clouds and a almost black looking sea underneath them. And so you don't get a great sense of the speed of the dog fights, But the way that they weave these planes in and out of the shots, I almost don't care. It has like a very, I don't know, like poetic kind of rhythm to it. It's it was so interesting to me. Yeah, that's that's the word I was going to use. It's just a beautiful rhythm. And I think that there's a reason like the Top Gun movies have done so well back in the 80s and, you know, now in the 2020s. There's just something totally rad about dogfighting in the air. Mm. And I like I could get a movie completely silent, you know, well, no no dialogue of just planes dogfighting. And I think I would just be mesmerized by it, like as long as it's done well. And as you said, Bob, they do it incredibly well here in Dunkirk. All right, man. Any other thoughts on the performances before we go into our whiskey for the day? Dude, I love Kenneth Branagh. He's so good. Mm. Dude, he like milks he, when he puts his his eyes up to those binoculars. 
And mm-hmm. when, when you first see the armada coming over the crest there, right? Mm-hmm. He milks it so much. You see the realization set in. And then from behind his hands, you see the smile start to creep in. And then he kind of gasps for his words. But he waits until he takes those GD binoculars down. <laughs> and then he takes one more breath and he goes, home. And I'm like, yeah. F yeah, home. Yeah. We're, you, like, we're you, all British in this moment. You, know? <laughs> <laughs> you get the sense that he didn't actually believe what he was telling everyone else mm. until that moment. It's such a hammy performance and it works so freaking well. It's perfect. Yeah. Like, and, and the reason it's perfect is because it's a real story and there's just so many military stories like that that are just ridiculous. Like the Germans should have smashed them, completely destroyed them. There should have been no chance of them escaping. And yet somehow they made it back. Yes. We'll and, talk about all this in the second half because I have many thoughts, both on German military strategy <laughs> and on the way Nolan depicts it. But mm-hmm. I'm with you, dude. Yeah. Let's get into this Chivas Regal meets a Nura cask. <laughs> Let's do it, man. All right, everybody. Today we are looking at Shivas Regal Mizunara cask finish. We haven't had a Shivas Regal product on this show, Brad, since either season one or season two. It's been a long time since we tried that affordable, popular, blended scotch whiskey. I'm really excited to dive back into it with this kind of special edition they have here. This is one that I picked up in uh, the Ohio Liquor Bureau's last call section. They were getting rid of this, and I was like, hey, this is, I think I spent like $40 on it. I was like, yeah, I'm going to try it. And it's because it said Mizunara on it. We have never done anything with Mizunara oak before. So, Brad, if you don't mind, I'm going to launch into a small little... uh, uh, the more you know with Bob here. I'm reading off of... Bob, you go right ahead. I'm reading off of wineenthusiast.com. They have a nice little article about Mizunara. Because I, to be fair, Brad, I don't know a thing about Mizunara Oak other than there were a lot of whiskeys about two years ago that used it. It got really popular for a minute and now it's like the market got got saturated and they've moved on to other kinds of oak now. <laughs> so we're coming in at the tail end of the craze here. Mizunara oak is a specific kind of oak that is grown in Japan. Uh, apparently, the name actually means water oak in Japanese because uh, something about, about the moisture content of the trees themselves make them more prone to holding water and then leaking. Uh, but when they are aged properly, they are like exceptional casks to use for wine, for spirits aging. They say that now like a single cask might cost a producer $6,000 to buy. And it says when left to mature correctly, a Mizunara aged whiskey offers complex notes of sandalwood, coconut, spice, and Japanese incense, which makes me really, really excited to see what a scotch finished in that will smell and taste like, Brad. Yeah, I am very excited for this. This is like maybe a first for a few seasons now, Bob. I am actually drinking this live, and I believe you've already done your tasting. Wow, we have really reversed roles tonight, man. Yeah, I did mine a couple days ago. I took very brief notes because I want to see what you think about it, and I don't want to tip my hand too much. Just a few more notes on this. It's aged for at least 12 years. It is a blend of Scottish grain and malt whiskeys. 
Let's freaking dive in, man. What are you picking up on the nose? Yeah, this is a really nice nose. Uh, For me, it's a little bit nutty. There's some like almond going on. Uh, it is very light and floral. There, there's some fruitiness. Uh, I don't know if I want to say citrus. Maybe, maybe like a, maybe like a peach kind of feel to it. Mm. I really like this nose a lot. I'm gonna give it an eight out of ten. The note that I took to start with on the nose was pear, pear, pear. I have never had this much like green. What is that? A Bartlett? I don't know what kind. What my pears are. It, it smelled like the juicy pear jelly belly. It is like the most mm. decadently pear forward thing. And I love pears. So I was like super pumped about this. Um, I got some melon on it. And then after you let it sit in the glass for a couple minutes, that fruitiness kind of dissipates a bit. And you're left with like layers and layers of brown sugar and caramel. It takes on like an almost bourbony decadence to it at the end. I loved this nose. I said beautiful in my notes. I'm going to give it a 9 out of 10. Yeah, and then I got into the palate here. The palate is, just feels really rich. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a lot of honey. Um, that nuttiness stays in there for me. But the longer I sit with it, the more the floral notes come through. And the more that I, I would agree with you that kind of the pear for me, it, it it still feels a little juicier than that. It feels peachy, but it, it's got that nice stone fruit feel to it. I am I'm a big fan of this, Bob. I'll give it an eight and a half on the on the palate. Yeah, for me, it was like a bottle of really sweet white wine was the kind of fruitiness I was getting on it. Really, really good. And then almost almost a grainy barley for me. There was a lot of barley malt on this, a little bit of char towards the back of the palate, and then it finished off. This is not really a finished note, but like the last thing I get when I go to swallow, it gets really creamy and it reminds me almost of like vanilla soft serve. It's Brad, this is a flavor experience we don't typically get on scotch and especially on like a blended scotch. The barrel here I think is really imparting a lot and I didn't pick up coconut on the palate but I could see why a lot of people tip towards that because that creaminess for me came across as like vanilla ice cream, but I could see it being like a cream of coconut for somebody. I'm going to give it an eight on the palate. And then on the finish, I'm also going to give it an eight. It gets just a bit bitter, but it's still really, really nice. The prickliness of the alcohol doesn't really make itself known until the finish. Uh, But once again, like way above average. So eight on the finish for me. I actually think that this, the finish is kind of where this excels. I love that note of like vanilla soft serve because that was coming through for me strong on the finish. And I think that there's an oakiness here, but it's it's unique. It's different. It's not the same wood note that you get on any other whiskey. Bob, this is truly a, a delicious whiskey. I, I'll give it a 9 out of 10 on the finish. And as far as balance goes, like, I can't imagine them doing many things better on this whiskey. Like, all of the flavors work together. It's a beautiful, sweet, floral whiskey that hits all the right notes for a blended scotch. I I really like this a lot. I'm going to stick it a 9 out of 10 on the balance. I'll also give it a 9 on balance. There is just a slight drop off from the nose to the finish for me, but that's just because the nose was one of the best scotch noses I've ever smelled. So it's a nine for me. 
Value is going to be interesting, Brad. So like I said, I paid about $40 for this. I'm assuming that it's getting harder to find out there. Like this was a limited edition release. I saw a couple search results come up that it's selling for like $200 now. But then I saw other stores that have it in stock and they're selling it for like $50 now. I don't know, man. What are you seeing on your end? I've been seeing in general anywhere from like $45 to $60. So I don't know. Let's set it at like a $55 price point. Yeah, I was going to say even $60 because if you're buying it online, like you're going to pay shipping. So even if you get the $45, you're probably true. Let's call it a $60 bottle of scotch. Listen, I know it's a blended scotch. It is better than a multitude of single malts that we have had Uh, at $60. This is kind of a no brainer for me, man. I'm going to give this a nine out of 10 on value. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm at an 8.5 on value. Uh, Bob, I'm coming out to a 43 out of 50 here. Brad, I am coming out to a 43 out of 50 here. Uh, I love it when we are in unison on something. And when, to be fair with you, man, like, I I bought this like a year ago and I've been kind of waiting to work it in. I wasn't like chomping at the bit to try it. I thought maybe it'll be okay. Uh, I am very pleasantly surprised. This is one of the best yeah. whiskeys we've had all season. It has achieved that 40 and above mark where it kind of becomes a no brainer. If you see it on the shelf, pick it up. If you see it at the bar, it is absolutely worth a pour. I can't recommend this highly enough, man. Yeah, this is a delicious whiskey that if you're still able to find it, buy the bottle immediately. Mm-hmm. All right, man. Well, I'm feeling very good right now. Let's get back into talking about Dunkirk. Let's get to it. All right, everybody. That was Chivas Regal Mizunura. Yeah, I can't say that word. Mizunara. Mizunura. Mizunara. Mozzarella. Maz- Marinara. <laughs> you're you're fucking me up now. <laughs> Italian oak cask. Mm, the marinara sauce. <laughs> it previously held marinara sauce. Now it has whiskey in it. Tastes like a tomato. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you got to bring us back, man. I'm All right, everybody. No that was Shivas right. Regal Mizunara cask, a whiskey that is beyond description as well as a name that is beyond pronunciation. So <laughs> we're getting back into talking about Dunkirk, which also begs a pronunciation question. Everyone in the movie calls it Dunkirk. We're going to Dunkirk. Uh, I don't know if that's because of it comes from the French or what, but I don't know, Brad, how do you say it? Do you say Dunkirk or Dunkirk? <laughs> I mean, I say it as the French do. Dunkirk. <laughs> That's it. That's it. All right, man. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna go off the rails really quickly if we don't get into our next segment, which we call Two Facts and a Falsehood." Brad is gonna try to stump you, Bob. To our right, and what is wrong? Two facts and a falsehood. That's right, everybody. Two facts and a falsehood. The segment where Canada cheers. Mm. First of all, uh, we're recording this like a a week or so in advance. I hope that Canada is recovering from these wildfires. Like, yeah, I don't know if you can hear the scratchiness in my voice. I live in northern Ohio and the smoke from the wildfires has been so bad that like the air quality in my area is off the charts. They say don't Mm -hmm. go outside. And if you do wear a mask to go outside, it's really bad, guys. So first of all, Brad and I are, are praying with and for Canada 
because uh, it's been rough, man. Yeah. Yeah, honestly, I'm kind of glad that we've been dedicating this segment to Canada for so long. It's it's our sincere support for everything that's going on up there. That, mm. Like, yeah, I mean, we get that some out west in, in California, and but man, they have a lot more trees than us, Bob. I'm going to feel real bad if I lose this week now, Brad. You know, it's like you got to win one for the Gipper here. So, yeah, I am. I mean, maybe maybe Canada's on my side, though, Bob. <laughs> that's that's true. <laughs> we will see how I do at two facts and a falsehood. This is where obviously Brad presents three items to me as fact about making this movie. And I have to figure out which one is the lie. Brad, hit me with your two facts and a falsehood. Fact number one, according to Sir Kenneth Branagh. Roughly 30 Dunkirk survivors, who were in their mid-90s at the time, attended the premiere in London. When asked about the movie, they felt it accurately captured the event, but that the soundtrack was louder than the actual bombardment. Mm. Fact number two, director Christopher Nolan had long wanted to direct a film about the Dunkirk evacuation, ever since he did a class project on it in primary school, saying that it was one of the most inspirational stories that he had ever heard. Fact number three, the scene in which Farrier's Spitfire lands on the Dunkirk beach was real, done on location with an actual Spitfire, and it was the first time a plane had landed on that beach since 1940. Well, that's cool. Right? Huh. So number three is interesting because when they actually show the plane landing on the beach, you don't see the town in the background. They The background is the ocean or the channel, I guess. So... Doing it on location doesn't really make a ton of sense because unless you're going to show Dunkirk in the background, like it could have been, it could have been Myrtle Beach. You know what I mean? Like no one knows the difference. <laughs> so there's there's just like bikini clad women running around <laughs> in the background. It's just a guy in like a Joe's Crab Shack t-shirt. <laughs> uh, so I'm immediately suspicious of three. Two sounds pretty plausible. I know that Nolan had been wanting to make a Dunkirk movie and developing it since the late 90s. I assume he heard this story as a boy growing up in England. One also sounds very plausible. So I think I'm I have a pretty equivalent chance of getting this wrong regardless. Canada, I'm so sorry. Uh, I'm going to go with three as the falsehood, Brad. Bob, you are back under 500. No. Fact number two was the falsehood. Ah, man, Christopher Nolan did not like this story as a child. <laughs> he hated it. He actively was rooting against <laughs> the English at that point. It was actually a bet between him and his brother that he lost, and his brother was the one who loved the story. Oh, interesting. No, I'm I'm completely making Oh, you're that making that up, up too. too. Man, I believed you. <laughs> this is the problem with two facts and a falsehood. You've... <laughs> You've got me <laughs> gaslit at this point, man. Oh, man. Okay, let's talk about this movie a little bit. And we don't usually do the, like, we're history buffs. Let's uh, let's compare this to how it really happened. But there are a couple things in the movie itself that didn't work for me, Brad. And I think that you have to kind of bring the historical record into it a little bit to highlight them. The first of which is that at the end of the movie, they say that 300,000 people get off of the beach. And get rescued. At no point in this movie does it look like there is anything remotely approaching 300,000 people on that beach. Like you see yeah. the planes going overhead and there's like a string of 20 people that are like. Yay! Mm -hmm. And I think that <laughs> Nolan is really good at 
taking small stories and making them appear to have huge scope. Like I think about the scene in the dark night where you get that, the showdown of the Joker and Batman on that abandoned like Chicago street Mm -hmm. when he flips the semi truck and stuff. Like literally that is just two guys in a semi truck. And it's like, it's an iconic action scene now, even though nothing really happens. But I feel like it's almost the inverse when Nolan has a gigantic scale to work with. Like, this movie doesn't have the heft and the scope and the scale that I feel like it needs. You needed to get more extras on that beach or CGI a couple people in. Like, we would have forgiven you for CGIing a couple soldiers in there, dude. Like, I know most of this is yeah. is done practically, but he had like 30 guys on the beach. <laughs> and they were like, look yeah. at the 300,000 soldiers. Yeah, no, I, I'm with you. I think that, I mean, honestly, if you want to pause this episode right now, just go Google the Dunkirk evacuation mm-hmm. and go to the Wikipedia page. Right at the very start, there's a picture of the beach and there's just countless troops in lines on the beach. And I'm like, just literally just recreate that shot. Like, how cool would it have been if the opening shot of the film was like a grainy film reel of that exact, you know, still and then slowly morphed into color and you see them all moving about mm-hmm. and then a plane swoops in and tries to bomb them. Like that would have been an incredible shot. And yeah, it, you know, it shouldn't be too hard to find 300,000 extras. <laughs> <laughs> that you don't seems even need, easy. Like the, the thing is, you know, when they make like sports movies, they usually only get enough extras to fill one section of the stadium. And then when they mm-hmm. cut to the other side, they just move the extras. Like, all you got to do is get like <laughs> a thousand people and then just make it look like 300,000. I don't know. Anyway, that's that's always bothered me about this movie. Like, the execution of the movie, the craft of the movie is incredible. But then there are just certain things about it where it's like, am I supposed to not notice that there's only like 30 guys on this beach? Like... In what world would this would would you even find a corner of the beach where you'd only have thirty guys? Yeah, and the other half of that is the the naval part of the equation, right? Like at the end of the day, they show quite a few you know civilian boats heading there, but you got to think like even if each boat carried forty people on it, you still need what is that a thousand boats or ten thousand boats? Well, I assume that they made many trips back and forth, right? But the way the movie portrays it, it's like we scooped them all up, we're done, and left. we're going back. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. And and so that's like that's the the hard part where you're like show me some more boats, show me some more men. Like it, it would have been pretty incredible to just see the scope of it. And honestly, like it, it makes me think about the opening of um Saving Private Ryan. Like that movie captures the scope of the D-Day invasion mm-hmm. incredibly well, where you just see thousands of men storming this beach, and there there's an impact of the size of it. So yeah, I, I'm I'm there with you, man. I, I think that they could have done a little bit better at at showing the the scope and size of it all. So I was talking to Google's AI Bard about Dunkirk. <laughs> I was asking questions about the movie Dunkirk and the real life historical events of Dunkirk. 
And uh, I'm going to read you an excerpt from the transcript I have with Google Bard. We're we're introducing AI. We're introducing AI. Yeah, man. Who would have thought that it would have come from an event 80, 90 years ago? So I was asking it questions like, what are some of the inaccuracies in the movie Dunkirk? Then I asked it like, were the soldiers really just hanging out on the beach? Were they not getting shot at by the enemy more than this? And then Google Bard got very snippy with me and said, the soldiers on the beach at Dunkirk were not just, quote, hanging out. They, they were <laughs> under constant threat of attack. And it goes to talk about, like, how often they were getting bombed and shot at from behind the barricades. And I asked it what kind of attacks were coming from behind them. And it just seemed like in this movie, you don't really have this constant threat of what's behind the walls. And I think that Nolan really could have leaned into some of the more horror aspects of movies like Memento or even Inception and had that kind of creeping sense of something is is creeping up on them from behind and they are trapped by this wall of water on the other side. It felt more to me the rhythm of the movie, the pace of the movie, like they made it to the beach and they were like, well, we just got to wait till they get here. So we're just going to sit here and not so much like we are being actively pursued like, you know, Pharaoh and his chariots are chasing us to the edge. Mm. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I want something like that where the desperation of I cannot move any farther, but I am getting pursued from behind. I think that's another element that is missing from this movie for me. So for you, it didn't work that he doesn't show any German troops other than like half a second when they capture Tom Hardy. I mean, I I like that it's kind of like a faceless presence, but you only... You know, it's very off screen. You get a couple bullet holes in the hull of the ship they're hiding in. But even if they had just had more shots where Finn Whitehead, you know, the camera's pushing in on his back and then he turns around because he knows there's something there, even if he can't see it, like just to increase the paranoia of it a little bit. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the opening sequence kind of establishes that a little bit when when Finn is escaping you know, he's the lone survivor of his troop that is killed by Germans in the town of Dunkirk. Mm-hmm. And honestly, like that opening scene was incredible. It, it's the most colorful part of the movie. And I, I remember thinking, I was like, man, this is just a beautiful opening shot of this film. And then everything else is kind of just gray and blue and, and sad as it should be. <laughs> it's a good, proper British film. Uh but I, I think that you're right. I, I think that there's places where the, the drama could have been extended. I just, for me, I think that the focus on the troops and the focus on, you know, the Air Force and the, the naval part of the film was more than enough to keep my attention. I feel like you're going to give this movie like an eight and a half. And yet it feels like you're talking about it like it's a seven. That's the thing is like. I'm not going to say my score, but I respect this movie and I want to give it like the recognition it deserves. It's kind of like this movie gets nominated for best picture, but it like no one thought it was going to win. It was nobody's favorite movie of the year, except I guess we came to find out later. Tarantino loves this movie, but but it's kind of like, yeah, it totally deserves to be nominated for everything. It is like an impeccably crafted film. It just doesn't all click for me. Yeah, that's I that's crazy, man. I mean, maybe it was just my first time through that that it hit for me. I thought that this was incredibly well done. Like I, I'm with you. There's flaws. It's not a perfect film. 
But I think it's one of the better war films that I've ever seen. Mm. I think that it captures a lot of the fear and terror of of what it's like to be at war. I think the few moments where you see real human uh, terror and, you know, just walking off into the ocean basically to commit suicide, like, that's brutal. Yeah. And I think Killian Murphy gives an incredible performance showing how desperate you feel in moments of of feeling that shell shock and PTSD. For me, so many avenues of this film worked well. And and I'll say, like, most all of this film is like a B plus to an A minus. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's not perfect, but none of it was ever uh, like a C minus. The only part that kind of struggled was Finn Whitehead. Mm -hmm. So I, I just... I come at this movie and go, man, I I just think this is a really technically brilliant and beautifully shot movie that I, I'm I'm in for. Okay, so I was going to talk more about what I was asking the AI, but I don't think I want to do that anymore because you just have set us <laughs> up for a perfect segue into our final two segments of the day, the first of which we call Let's Make It a Double. We're near the end of the episode, so thanks for listening to the Film and Whiskey Show. Let's pair another film with this one, even if it's a struggle. It's the final segment of the day, now let's make it a double. Let's Make It a Double is the part of the podcast where we pick a movie to pair up with this one to make the perfect double feature. Brad, you are the, uh, you're the fan of this movie. I want to see what you pair this up with. Man, this is an interesting one. I, I remember hearing somebody... I don't know if they talked about it or if it was a video I watched that talked about cinematic universes. And, you know, we have the MCU and then all the other spinoffs that never actually worked. But they talked about how in history there's like historical movie universes, the largest one being the World War II movie universe. And I I think you kind of have to stay in that realm for Dunkirk. Uh I'm trying to I'm trying to remember the name of the movie. I liked it a lot. Was it The King's Speech? Yeah, that that's that's nothing like Dunkirk, but yeah, the the movie with Colin Firth where he has a speech impediment and he Yeah. Yeah. I'm, oh yeah, I'm totally gonna, reminds me of Dunkirk. I'm going to pair that with Dunkirk cuz I think that there's something of capturing the element of what's going on at home in England and the struggles they're facing there with the military operations that are happening. Hmm. I, I think there's something worth watching there. And uh, so I and I also just really like the King's speech. So I'm that's what I'm pairing it up with, Bob. Scoff at me all you'd like. Scoff, scoff, sir. All right. I'm going to pair <laughs> this up with a movie that I went to the movie theater to see this and it freaking blew my mind at the time. It's a documentary that was made by Peter Jackson, the director of the Lord of the Rings films. Uh, It's not the Beatles documentary, although that would have been really funny if I had done that. (laughs) It's a movie called They Shall Not Grow Old. It is uh, basically Peter Jackson and all of his folks at Weta Digital. They were given access to hours and hours and hours of original footage from World War One. And they took it. They colorized it. They upscaled it all to 4K. They restored it. They took all the pops and scratches out of it and basically what they did was they recreated, they hired people from like different uh, different areas of England based on the patches they saw on the soldiers' uniforms to read the lips of what they saw in this footage. And they just recreated what life was like for soldiers in World War One. It brought 
this war that was a hundred years old at the time into the modern day. And it was like, it was a game changer for me to see that, Brad, because I'd never seen, you know, once in a while you see colorized World War II footage. This was colorized and updated World War I footage. And there was just something about the way that Jackson imparted such a humanity to these people in small strips of film from 100 years ago. It really is just like it balances out for me what this movie's lacking in terms of character development. And so I think it'd be a perfect double feature with Dunkirk. There you go. I, I think that's a great, great pairing, dude. Well, thank you very much, sir. No scoffing here. <laughs> oh, man. what What's your final score on this, Bob? I'm really curious where you're going to end up. I think, like, objectively, this movie should be given an 8 out of 10. I think that I enjoy it a 7.5 out of 10. Mm. It's a like, and that feels weird to say because like, this is a much better made movie than 90% of three star movies, right? Like it's just, yeah. it's incredible to look at. You can tell there's a genius behind the camera and also writing the script, but it just doesn't all click for me. It leaves me feeling a little detached, a little cold. And I think for that reason, I can't really go above a seven and a half on this one. Yeah, I this just worked for me, man. I, I think that the action sequences are brilliantly shot. I think he captures the claustrophobia of being in a sinking ship incredibly well. There, there's just so many brilliant moments throughout this movie that just like took my breath away. Hmm. So I'm going to give it a 9 out of 10. Uh, I think that this is a stellar movie and one of the better World War II movies that we've gotten in a very long time. All right, so I'm giving it a seven and a half. Brad gives it a nine. That brings our average to an 8.25 out of 10. But I'd like to know what you think, Film and Whiskey Nation. Seems like I'm more in line with the general public on this. But if you're a Nolan fan, then I have a feeling you probably appreciate this movie a little bit more. So let us know what you think. You can find us on social media at Film Whiskey on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, YouTube, Facebook, all the things. At Film Whiskey. <laughs> or you can jump on a Discord, which I'm sure will be bought into the metaverse at, at some point. Uh, you can join the conversation on Discord. There's a link to it at the end of every single one of our show notes. Brad, next week, we are just fully diving into the Japanese stuff. We, we, we dipped our toe into it with Mizunara this week. Next week, we are introducing Akira Kurosawa. I cannot freaking wait, man. We're starting with his 1950 masterpiece, Rashomon. How pumped are you? Dude, dude, I am incredibly excited to jump in to Kurosawa. Uh, it's it's something that like I've wanted to do for a while, but I've held off because I know we're going to do it on the podcast. So here we are, and I am so, so pumped for it. All right. We will see you guys next week for Rashomon. But until then, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time. 